Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, pedophilia, sexual assault, and rape that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On a brisk spring night in Portland, Oregon, 25-year-old Randy Woodfield walked slowly through Dunaway Park. He ambled in the darkness on the prowl for the perfect woman. Eventually, he spotted a young woman strolling the dark trails, and she was everything Randy was looking for, pretty and alone. He followed her, deciding that tonight she'd be the one. In his mind, Randy could already picture her surprise and shock. He was tall, athletic, and handsome. She might even be honored by his attention. Once Randy got close enough, he darted out of the shadows, confident the woman wouldn't get away. There was no way she could outrun him. He was too fast. In seconds, he was on her. He could see the fear in the woman's eyes. It thrilled him, but he wanted more, and he knew just how to get it. He reached into his pocket and pulled out a knife. Randy grabbed the woman and rested the blade against her throat. He felt her pulse race through the handle, and he liked it. But what to do next, he wondered. There were so many options. With a woman powerless before him, the world was his oyster. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're exploring the chilling case of Randy Woodfield, otherwise known as the I-5 killer. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, we'll look into Randy's sheltered early life and renowned athletic talent. Then, we'll see how people kept Randy's disturbing behavior under wraps during his rise as a professional football player. Next time, we'll follow Randy's violent killing sprees across the I-5 highway in Oregon, Washington, and California and watch his inevitable downfall. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the wallet app, and you're good to go. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm Kathleen Goltar, and I'm the host of a new podcast, Crime Story. Every week, we bring you a different crime, told by the storyteller who knows it best. You got one witness who can't be found. You got another witness who's murdered. We couldn't sugarcoat the story. I was getting calls from Cosby's attorney threatening to sue every day. Every crime in one way or another is a reflection of who we are as a people, as a city, as a country. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. 
There are few people more revered in American society than the football star. Coaches and parents go to great lengths to protect their athletes on and off the field, eager to usher in a shining, lucrative future. This sometimes means that when an athletic young man shows promise for success, people around them might be tempted to bend the rules in his favor. They believe they're ensuring a bright future for a good kid, but there's a danger in this, one that might escape their notice, because the truth is they might just be planting a seed in the boy's mind, sending him the message that he can do no wrong, that he'll always be protected, whether that's by his teammates during a play or by the system after the final whistle sounds. In so many ways, he's untouchable above the law. Or so his experiences might lead him to believe. Prodigious athletic ability will only get you so far in life, and many professional athletes know that. But not everyone has the benefit of that perspective. The golden children of their towns, all they've ever known is glory. One such child was born in Salem, Oregon, in December of 1950. Randall Brent Woodfield's parents were overjoyed, especially his father Jack. He loved his daughters, but had dreamed of teaching a son about sports and how to be a proper man. But Jack's joy was hampered by his demanding job at the Pacific Northwest Bell Telephone Company. The work left him with little time for the father-son bonding he had always dreamed of. So Randy was mostly cared for by his mother, Donna Jean, and his older sisters. But it wasn't all roses in the Woodfield home, and conflict eventually arose between Randy and the women in his family. Randy wasn't always jealous that his sisters were allowed to do things that he wasn't, like staying out late. Donna Jean explained it was because they were older, but Randy took these slights personally and overreacted by throwing tantrums. To be fair, Randy was a young child who just wanted to follow his sister's lead. He likely didn't understand his own limitations, but his mother didn't let these outbursts go unaddressed. Donna Jean didn't believe in punishing her children with physical force or harsh words. Instead, she shook her head and gave Randy a look of deep disappointment, making him feel ashamed. She expected more and better from her son, and the humiliation he felt impacted the rest of Randy's life. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. As a note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Psychologist Stefania Romanini has discussed how children can react to their parents' unachievable standards in several ways. Among other effects, they're more likely to feel anxious, and this anxiety typically stems from a sense of lost control over their own lives. Randy certainly felt this any time his mother gave him a disapproving gaze, but instead of finding fault with his own actions, he often blamed his sisters, who he thought his parents favored more. He believed that the girls had an unfair advantage over him. So Randy looked for another way to regain control, to feel like the man his father expected him to be. And eventually, that desire led him to sports. Throughout his childhood, Randy spent his weekends playing pickup games of every kind. He usually did well, partly because he was taller and stronger than kids his age, but also because he was a faster runner. Soon everyone, including his parents, expected him to become a star athlete. Randy really started to shine in sports during middle school. No matter what he tried his hand at, he was the best player his small town had ever seen. When word of his skill got around, people showed up at games just to watch him play. 
but no one in the stands cheered louder than his parents. Randy loved the adoration. It was his favorite part of playing any sport, especially football. The more he excelled, the louder people cheered for him, the more Randy realized he wasn't an ordinary athlete. He was better than all of the other kids. He was special. But this feeling didn't do much to improve his relationship with his mother. Even as he excelled on the field, his mother's gaze could make him feel small, ashamed, worthless. So, when he felt like he was losing control of things outside of a game, the young teen found a twisted way to take charge. One night, pre-teen Randy wandered around the streets of Newport, Oregon, looking for a way to feel power over someone else. When he spotted a woman walking alone, he knew what he wanted to do. He approached the woman, opened his pants, and flashed his erect penis to her. Once Randy registered the shock and horror on the woman's face, he sprinted away only to repeat the act several times that evening. Then, over the next few months, he did it again and again. Randy had found a thrill in this exhibitionism. According to psychologist Dr. Daryl Turner, many exhibitionist men find the act to be sexually arousing. But beyond that, the behavior is a warped attempt at regaining power and control. Exposing one's genitals to others without consent victimizes those on the receiving end, making them feel helpless. And that's what Randy likely enjoyed about his disturbing new habit. While he felt stifled by his mother and sisters, he felt like a true man when he was on the football field and when he was exposing himself to strangers. That is, until someone finally reported Randy to the police. The cops caught him. But because he came from a good family and had no prior offenses on his record, they let him off the hook. This early experience likely taught Randy that as long as people saw him as the golden boy, he could always get away with just about anything, even with the cops. In 1964, 14-year-old Randy carried that lesson with him to high school, where he thrived in every aspect of his life. His teachers loved him, he had plenty of friends, and he was the best varsity player on the football field. He was also tall, strong, and handsome. So naturally, he caught the eye of several female classmates, and Randy only wanted to date the most popular girls in school, paying particular attention to freshmen who were younger than him. He became a serial dater and was known to be in a relationship with a woman for only a couple of months before moving to the next. But he wasn't just well-liked by the girls. At one stage during his high school years, the Newport Rotary Club voted Randy Boy of the Month, bolstering his reputation as the town's perfect son. But out of all of his accomplishments, including his girlfriends, Randy prioritized football above everything else. He found his niche in the wide receiver position, a key player who catches the quarterback's passes. To be successful in this role, a player needs to be fast, strong, and precise which Randy was. Soon, he emerged as one of the best players in the area. It was clear to everyone, including Randy, that he was bound for the ranks of the NFL. With all his successes, Randy's parents were ecstatic. To everyone's relief, he seemed to have outgrown his tantrums to become a smart, well-mannered young man. At least, that's what it seemed like from the outside. But his parents had no idea about Randy's dark obsession with exposing himself to women. 16-year-old Randy stood on a footbridge, leaning over to watch the people walking underneath. A few women glanced up and saw the handsome boy smiling down at them. They grinned back by instinct. 
but something seemed off about the way he was standing. After a few seconds, they noticed Randy was flashing his genitals. After clocking this, the women averted their eyes and scurried by, feeling embarrassed and shocked. At first, nobody reported Randy, which unfortunately is common. Victims of flashers and exhibitionists rarely report the perpetrator because they aren't physically hurt by the incident. For that reason, many believe it's unnecessary to call the police. But someone did eventually call the cops on Randy. And this time, they arrested Randy for indecent exposure and called his parents. Donna Jean and Jack were shocked by the revelation. Like any concerned parents, Randy's parents wanted him to get help, so they sent him to a therapist. But the doctor quelled their fears, explaining that Randy's exhibitionism was just natural sexual exploration. He said that there was no reason for alarm. Unfortunately, this showed how misunderstood exhibitionism was in the 1960s. At the time, it was considered less serious than sexual behaviors that physically harm victims. But now we know that exhibitionism can be an ominous precursor to those same dangerous crimes. A 2006 study published in the Journal of the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law found that 57.1% of untreated men exhibitionists continue their behavior and re-offend. On top of that, nearly 40% graduate to other sexual, violent, or criminal offenses. But neither Randy's therapist nor his parents knew that. Randy's parents followed the counselor's advice, carrying on as though nothing had changed. As a precaution, Donna Jean and Jack informed Randy's football coaches about his indiscretion. But the coaches didn't reprimand or sideline the boy. They looked the other way, allowing Randy to continue playing. Then, when he turned 18, Randy's juvenile record was expunged, meaning he entered adulthood with a clean slate. And after spending his childhood escaping punishment because of his skills on the football field, he was ready to see exactly how much he could get away with as an adult. Coming up, Randy hides his sinister behavior behind a bizarre facade. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the wallet app, and you're good to go. Now back to the story. 
in 1969, Randy Woodfield graduated from his Oregon high school, eager to step into adulthood. He'd escaped punishment for his teenage indecent exposure charges, which his football coaches swept under the rug. Now he was ready to enter the world of college and take his first steps to reaching his dream of playing professional football. He moved across Oregon to attend Treasure Valley Community College, and like most college students, enjoyed his newfound freedom. He was not under his parents' roof, he could do what he wanted, when he wanted, and felt like he was finally out from under his mother's disapproving gaze. And of course, Randy played sports at Treasure Valley. He joined the varsity basketball, track, and weightlifting teams, and his talent earned him a spot as co-captain of the varsity football team, where he was a clear standout. Everything was going according to plan. Treasure Valley wasn't an especially prestigious school, but it afforded him opportunities to improve himself all the same. Unfortunately, because the school was only a community college, their football team didn't compete in a league where he might be seen by NFL scouts. That last detail was a bit of a problem. Randy had high expectations to live up to, but unlike the childhood pressures from his parents, his goal of playing professional football came from himself. He needed everyone to see that he was the perfect man and athlete. Before long, though, Randy realized Treasure Valley's football team wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Scouts never came to any of his games, so no one of note was watching his spectacular plays. Suddenly, Randy felt like he made the wrong choice. Disheartened, he stopped giving his all on the gridiron and disengaged from classes, letting his grades plummet. And more troubling, he started acting out again. He stole cassette tapes from another student's dorm, and initially lied when confronted about it. But Randy was just getting started. As his interest in sports and academics flagged somewhat, Randy tried to perfect another extracurricular activity, dating. One of his first college romances was with a girl named Sharon McNeil. Randy fell head over heels, but like many young people, Sharon wanted to play the field. Randy hated to think Sharon preferred other men over him, but hoped she'd realize he was the best choice. She didn't. They eventually broke up and Randy was furious. He felt that her rejection undermined his masculinity and he couldn't think of anything else. Randy called Sharon constantly. We're not sure what he said on these calls, but it seems safe to assume they were emotional and maybe even angry. And while it sounds like the aggressive actions of an inflated ego that's been bruised, this over-the-top reaction actually hinted at something deeper. Looking back at them, Randy's characteristics and actions resembled those often displayed by people with narcissistic personality disorder, or NPD. This is a condition that the DSM-5 notes is defined by a pattern of grandiosity, need for admiration, and lack of empathy. It's important to note that Randy was never diagnosed with NPD, but his behavior aligns with many of the symptoms. Like Randy, people with NPD typically believe they're special and expect others to admire them, but they don't handle rejection, criticism, or punishment well. In fact, the term narcissistic rage describes the intense anger someone with NPD can display if they feel they've been wronged. It also didn't help that Randy was involved in a sport that painted him as the all-American golden boy and may have nurtured these symptoms. 
A 2003 study found that football players received higher scores on narcissism personality evaluation compared to non-athletes. But right now, Randy didn't feel much like a footballer. His career had stalled out before it even began, and Sharon's rejection was just another slap in the face. It wasn't an insult he was willing to ignore. On August 3, 1970, Randy shattered Sharon's bathroom window in her family's home and climbed inside. Nobody was around, so he made his way to her bedroom. In a frenzy, he vandalized what he could get his hands on, hoping for revenge. When he was done, he stood back, surveying the chaos he'd created, flushed with pleasure. Then he left, disappearing into the night. When the McNeil family returned, they found the mess and were quick to suspect Sharon's volatile ex. The police arrested Randy and charged him with vandalism. But with no physical evidence to tie him to the crime, the case against Randy was weak. Plus, with his juvenile record expunged, there was no indication he'd ever been anything but squeaky clean. So the jury declared him not guilty, and he walked free. Randy was thankful for this good fortune, but still didn't possess the good sense to walk away. He was obsessed with Sharon. Not only had she rejected him, she'd pressed charges against him. He was more furious than ever. After the trial, Randy harassed Sharon with letters and more phone calls. Eventually, Sharon changed her number, and Randy finally let go, otherwise unaffected by the episode and seemingly ready to move on at last at least for now. Randy left Treasure Valley Community College after his freshman year. The charges brought against him for the break-in had tarnished his reputation, but in his eyes, that was the fault of everyone but himself. This too is a common aspect of narcissists. According to therapist Dr. Eleanor Greenberg, people with NPD aren't able to tolerate the idea that they could be in the wrong. So instead, they place the blame on everyone else, even people they love. And the people felt Randy loved him the best were his family. So he returned home to Newport, Oregon. He needed to regroup and rethink his path to being a professional football player. In the meantime, he took a job at a woodmill and played pickup football games with old friends at his high school's football field. Just like back in his heyday, people gathered to watch him play, and he reveled in the attention. During one particular game, Randy, who was around 20 years old, noticed a pretty young girl gazing at him from the stands. Her name was Tracy Connors, and she was just an eighth grader. After the game, Randy introduced himself to the teen. After that, Randy and Tracy started spending a lot of time together, and within months, they were getting uncomfortably close. One night, when his parents were out of town, Randy invited Tracy over. After they shared some beers on the couch, he leaned over and kissed Tracy. At the time, she was delighted that this handsome older jock liked her, so she went along with his advances. They fooled around for a few more minutes, which caused Randy to orgasm. After this, Tracy told him she didn't want to actually have sex, so they called it a night and slept in separate beds. This predatory relationship with Tracy marked the beginning of a troubling pattern. There was a safety in these young women that Randy likely needed. According to a 2019 study, narcissists tend to surround themselves with people they can control. People with NPD can often be volatile partners with excessive demands for special treatment, disinterest in others' emotional experiences, and a lack of empathy. Chasing younger women allowed Randy to be the center of the quote-unquote relationship. 
They worshipped the handsome older football star, and they rarely challenged him. In short, it did wonders for his confidence. Basking at a middle schooler's admiration and the joys of a summer on his high school's football field left him rejuvenated. So he tried out for Portland State University's football team and was immediately accepted. When Randy arrived at the school in 1971, he was determined not to blow this opportunity. He saw PSU as his chance to finally get noticed by the NFL. So Randy trained harder than ever, buddied up to the coaching staff, and played his heart out. But instead of fitting seamlessly into the team, some of his fellow players found the new wide receiver off-putting. As time went on, players started noticing that he was strange. One teammate said he had a bad feeling about Randy, especially because he was strangely obsessed with his body. Another said Randy was more interested in looking good than playing football. Perhaps more jarring than his other quirks, though, was Randy's extreme religious faith. He'd never shown such a deep interest in Christianity before PSU, but upon his arrival, he joined two campus Christian organizations. It's entirely possible that Randy wanted a fresh start after his previous legal trouble, but still his teammates theorized that his faith was an extension of his vanity. One player observed, it seemed real important to him that he come across as someone who would do the right thing. Even Randy's family and friends from his hometown found this conversion intense. Despite this outward commitment to Christianity, Randy secretly resumed his habit of flashing women. As a teenager, he'd exposed himself to gain control and battle insecurities. But now, content in his life at PSU, the practice seemed to be more about just enjoying himself. It's not clear exactly when he fell back into this old habit. But on June 22, 1973, 22-year-old Randy stood in the dark of night, half hidden in shadow. He whispered to female passers-by to look at him as he played with his genitals. Once again, someone called the police on him. When the officers arrived, Randy fled, and given his speed, he was initially able to outrun them. But it didn't take long for the police to corner and arrest him. The police charged Randy with indecent exposure, resisting arrest, and attempting to elude arrest, which meant he would have to return to court. In front of the judge, Randy appeared remorseful. Hoping to avoid punishment, he explained that he was a leader in the religious community, boasted that his grades were on the rise, and said that he supported himself through odd jobs. He was a good man and athlete who made a simple mistake. But the judge wasn't buying it. Randy may have skirted the law in his hometown, but this time, things were going to be different. At the end of the proceedings, the judge sentenced Randy to nearly six months in prison. It looked like his football career, his future, was over before it even began. Coming up, Randy's sick game continues and finally turns deadly. Now back to the story. In 1973, 23-year-old Randy Woodfield was sentenced to almost six months in jail for indecent exposure, resisting arrest, and an attempt to elude arrest. But for some reason, he never served his time. The specifics are unclear, but instead of going to prison, the promising athlete ended up with a year's probation, which meant he was allowed to remain free, with some court-ordered supervision. This left him able to return to Portland State University's football team, where he played as a wide receiver. 
Having once again avoided punishment for his crimes, Randy was free to shine on the college stage. His speed and coordination on the field were excellent, which attracted the attention of NFL scouts. The Green Bay Packers took a particular interest in Randy, so a year later he dropped out of college to enter the 1974 NFL Draft, and on February 20th, 1974, Randy signed with the team. At last, his years-long dream had come true. He was officially an NFL player. But despite this new high-profile job, he still continued his dark habits. Just two days after he signed with the Packers, Randy returned to his old habits and spent an evening exposing himself to women, relishing their reactions. Randy was arrested again and was eventually hauled up in front of another judge. He tried his contrite act, saying he never meant to hurt anyone. He promised he learned his lesson, and this time it worked. It might have helped that Randy was a professional football player. It's been suggested that the NFL has a history of protecting players from criminal convictions. Whatever the case, Randy's sentence seems light. Five years probation and court-mandated counseling, and even that was too much for the ego-driven athlete. While he reluctantly signed in with his parole officer as required, he refused to go to counseling. He was determined to move on, focusing his attention on his football career. Later that spring, he arrived in Arizona for spring training and worked with his dream team he'd finally made it. But there was no time to rest on his laurels. Beyond spring training, Randy needed to survive the first few rounds of cuts during regular workouts in Wisconsin. Randy's speed impressed the coaches, and he was certain that he was guaranteed a position on the team's roster. He was under a lot of pressure, but he was also the happiest he'd ever been, and his elation was blinding. But despite his talent, Randy couldn't see the reality of his situation. That season, the Packers' plays centered around another position, running backs. That meant the team had no need for extra wide receivers, even ones as talented as Randy. So in August of 1974, the Packers cut him from the team right before the season began. Unsurprisingly, Randy was devastated, but he still had options. Randy began playing for a semi-pro team, the Manitowoc Chiefs. Displaying perspective in his career that he never seemed to apply to his crimes, Randy saw this as an opportunity for a second chance. So he worked hard and thrived with the Chiefs, laser-focused on his goal of getting back into the NFL. This new team brought Randy to Manitowoc, Wisconsin, a small town located near Lake Michigan. And for the most part, he kept to himself in his new home. But eventually, his darker urges bubbled to the surface, and he just couldn't help himself. Over the next year, Randy was connected to at least 10 accounts of indecent exposure across Wisconsin, but he was never arrested. Though he avoided jail time for his exploits, Randy finally paid a hefty price for his misdeeds. The Chiefs ended Randy's contract suddenly and without explanation. The team never commented on the dismissal, and it's unclear if they knew about Randy's habit. But if they did, it's clear they took steps to distance themselves from him. And Randy? What else could he do but drive home to Oregon? There, he got a job tending bar and faced the fact that his life was spiraling out of control. His dream of playing in the NFL was dead. 
And as a man who defined himself through his athleticism, his sense of self-worth was lower than ever. Desperate, he sought approval and attention from anyone he thought would give him both. And in his experience, his most obliging audience was women. Beyond that, he didn't much care who the women were, so he continued writing letters to many women he had once dated, as well as ladies he hoped to court. And while some of this helped Randy, it wasn't enough. He wanted more attention, more control, and he wanted to see the faces of the women he was affecting. Phone calls and letters just weren't giving him that, so eventually his urges turned dark again. Randy began visiting a local park to flash women, just like he'd been doing since he was a teenager. But now even that didn't give him enough of a thrill. So he started bringing a knife with him. On these nights, Randy stopped women, exposed his erect penis, and held the weapon to their throats. Then he demanded two things from his victims, money and oral sex. It's unclear how many times he pulled off this terrifying attack, but eventually police were tipped off and set out to catch him. One night in 1975, Randy Woodfield strolled through the park as usual, looking for his next victim. Out of the corner of his eye, he spotted a woman walking alone. We'll call her Lucy. Randy crept up behind Lucy and pounced, pressing the knife against her neck and demanding money. She gave him a handful of bills, which Randy pocketed, frustrated by how little she had. Then he assaulted her and fled. He didn't get very far. All of a sudden, several cops surrounded him. Out of options, Randy set down his knife and surrendered. As it turned out, Lucy was an undercover cop, and Randy had walked right into a sting operation. He was shocked and angry, perhaps most of all with Lucy, another woman who'd set out to ruin his life. This time, without the heft of his promising athletic skill behind him, and with several charges on his record, Randy was unable to weasel out of his punishment. He was eventually charged with second-degree robbery and sexual assault, though the latter charges were later dropped. At trial, Randy pleaded guilty to the robbery charge and awaited his sentence. But before that was handed down, a psychologist interviewed Randy to determine if he posed a threat to society. While talking with the doctor, Randy acknowledged that he had issues to work out, which might seem like a semblance of growth, but he continued to suggest that he was unable to control his perverse desires. Then he tried to make use of his faith, hoping he could paint himself as a good man who was deserving of a second chance. But the psychologist didn't buy it. Though he was trying his hardest to foist blame elsewhere, Randy didn't seem remorseful about his crimes. Additionally, the counselor noted that Randy displayed dangerous tendencies. She pointed out that Randy detached himself from his crimes and told the court that, for the safety of the community, he needed to be in an institutional setting. This description fits what we know about Randy to a T. And even if he disregarded the consequences of his actions, they had finally caught up with him. After his evaluation, Randy was sentenced to 10 years in prison. When Randy arrived at the jail, he had a hard time adjusting to his new life. He couldn't believe he had fallen so far, especially since he'd gotten so close to his NFL dream. Now he was in prison, fielding visits from friends and family and working in the kitchen. And all the while, he was trying to figure out how he could shorten his stay. 
Randy eventually decided he could make this happen through his prison psychologists. He just had to tell the doctors exactly what they needed to hear. The first step was for him to figure out exactly what language the counselors listened for to tell if a patient was remorseful. Randy began incorporating the terms and ideas into his therapy sessions, hoping to convince staff that he was a changed man. Randy also promised to seek long-term psychiatric help whenever he was released. He said all he wanted to do was overcome his issues and stop running from his problems. He even took a vow of celibacy. Finally, in July of 1979, Randy's careful scheme paid off. After four years in prison, he was granted parole, seemingly a changed man. He was anything but. Following his release, Randy headed back to Portland and moved in with one of his sisters. As a condition of his release, he had to check in with his parole officers regularly, and they just happened to be women. Once again, Randy felt stifled by women who were more powerful than him. He was an adult now and a former NFL player. He should be the one in charge. With his darker impulses bubbling beneath the surface once more, Randy tried to take control of his life in any way he could. He betted countless women he met while working as a bartender, allegedly collecting about 250 phone numbers in his little black book. With football no longer a part of his life, he relied on these women to fuel his ego, which needed a lot of support. He dated many ladies at a time while also writing to others, sometimes sending photos of himself. He even sent a nude photograph to his ex-girlfriend, Sharon. In a way, this was a new form of exhibitionism for Randy, but even that couldn't truly satisfy him. And though his dark impulses were slowly building inside, he didn't want to return to jail. So Randy tried to recapture the glory of his teenage years. In 1979, when he was 29, Randy helped throw a 10-year high school reunion. A bevy of his former classmates descended on their old stomping grounds, making Randy feel like the center of attention, finally the most popular person in the room again. During the gathering, he held court, mostly talking about his stint with the Green Bay Packers. And though the party eventually ended and everyone went their separate ways once more, one friend in particular, Sherry Ayers, who Randy had known since elementary school, wanted to keep in touch. Over the next year, the pair got closer, though just as friends. Sherry had a fiancé, and Randy respected her boundaries. For her part, it didn't seem like Sherry cared about Randy's past. She was just happy to reconnect with an old friend. But she likely had no idea his sinister urges were a powder keg just waiting for a spark. She never suspected that he was dangerous in any way. But he was. Though he'd kept his impulses in check since he left prison, Randy couldn't control himself forever. And it seems that by early October 1980, he was set to explode. Only now, exposing himself to women wasn't going to be enough of a release. That month, Randy went to see Sherry at her home. It seemed like one of their usual friendly visits, a repeat of their countless hangouts from the last year. But it wasn't. It's hard to say what happened for sure, but it's been speculated that something made Randy snap, and Sherry was just unlucky enough to be there at the time Whatever sparked the violence, the outcome was the same. He beat and sexually assaulted his friend in her own home. After he was done, he let out a long breath. It seems he'd found a satisfying outlet for his frustration and rage, murder. 
and Randy had a lot of anger to get out, his story was just beginning. Thanks again for tuning into Serial Killers. We'll be back soon with part two on Randy Woodfield. We'll watch his transformation into the fearsome I-5 killer, one of America's most prolific serial murderers. For more information on Randy Woodfield, amongst the many sources we used, we found the I-5 killer by Anne Rule extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Have a killer week. Serial Killers is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Billy Pace, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Kit Fitzgerald, with writing assistance by Mallory Cara and Joel Callen, fact-checking by Amber Hurley, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Serial Killers stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 